you will never find a more wretched hive of scum and villainy. We must be cautious. Come on! Uh, Get in there, Maverick! It's no good. Cornelius and I have been indicted for heresy. It is evil. It is so evil. It is a bad, bad plan. And welcome to another edition of Heretics, where hopefully the roof doesn't cave in. If you hear any random weird noises or me running for cover and screaming for my life, it's because we actually have people working on the roof here, and hopefully they will not come through and visit me in the middle of this, and hopefully everything works out well and we can record in one shot. But if we cannot, then I promise we shall carry on and edit this as best as we can so that it makes sense. So with all of that said, here's your warning. I've come to you this week to tell you that physical is sinful, but so is the spiritual. And you're going, huh? That didn't even make sense, dude. Like That that makes my head hurt. Makes my head hurt, and I wrote it. I warned you a few weeks ago that we needed to look at a specific group, and so today we will. Today, the object of our investigation is, dun-dun-dun, the Docetists. You're going, huh? Exactly. Docetism was one of those uh, short-lived early church heresies that just had a knack for, you know, sending out its little tentacles into uh, every other theological system it came in contact with. So if you paid attention before, we've actually mentioned them before. They... Uh, They influenced Marcion. You can see the influence of Docetism in the Ebionites as well as other uh, monophysitist groups. Monophysitists would be the ones that held to the singular nature of Christ, which is what we'll try to deal with this morning or this afternoon, depending on when you like listening. Now, the name comes from the Greek word dakeo, so... Um, you'll hear it pronounced docetist, which is my preferred pronunciation. You'll also hear it docetists, which probably is the accurate one. And you'll also hear docetists. That just makes me sound like I should say this all with my pinky up. So I don't go with that one. So they come from the Greek word dekeo, which means to I think or I seen. And you'll see why that's important. They were cataloged by the archbishop of Antioch, well, not Archbishop, of the Bishop of Antioch named Serapion somewhere around the, the turn of the 2nd to 3rd century, so between 197-ish to 203-ish. And it led to uh, Serapion and the other churches in his area and around, really, the Christian world to actually reject the Gospel of Peter as Gnostic and heretical because the Docetists were using it to justify some of their doctrines. So this falls for the... Uh, falls in line with the refutation of the Bauer hypothesis that states that, you know, there were many streams of Christianity, but only one won out, and they got to write the history. No, no, no. There was orthodoxy, which we trace from the apostles down through the church fathers into the uh, the approved teachings of the, uh, the councils and down through history as proven to be that which is biblical and good. There's that orthodox stream, and then there's heterodox or heretical, and those streams were refuted by the Orthodox Christians. You actually see this in church history with guys like Marcion. In order to condemn Marcion's amended canon, you had to actually have a standard by which we go by. So we didn't have competition. We had the good and the right uh, really booting out the, uh, the, uh, the heterodox and the heretical. So what is a docetist, you may ask? Well, I'm glad you did. The teachings of the docetists 
kind of show them to be a predominantly mystical religion because of their overemphasis on the uh, duality of spirit and body. Now, I say mystical in an actual technical sense. I don't say that to be insulting. I do mean it in a technical sense. The docetists are concerned with the ethereal, the spiritual realm, more so than any functional religion or worship in life. This goes back to the, uh, you know, I really, I love Jesus, but I hate religion. You can't. Jesus comes from a religion with a law, with ordinances, with sacraments, and he institutes a religion built upon that law with actual sacraments and function and hierarchy. You can't hate religion and still love Christ because Jesus gives you a religion. Now, to put that in simple terms, the docetic mind kind of thinks of the body as bad and the spirit as good, which is why we, we uh, view them as a subset of Gnosticism, or you could really view Gnosticism as a subset of Docetism, or you can kind of view them as kissing cousins. I really don't care. They walk hand in hand down the same bad alley. Now, with the dualism of docetism, there's the teaching that the body of Jesus was not an actual body. It may have looked real, but it was some sort of uh, projection or phantasm or other manifestation, depending on which stream within docetism you liked and followed. Now, because of this emphasis on diminishing the humanity of Jesus, docetism borrowed, or was borrowed rather, by several other heretical first and second century groups. This is the tentacling out. Um, you'll see docetism predominantly in one of uh, two, uh, two forms. It appeared in multiple ways. See, see it, it, it appeared. See what we did there? It's a, it's a docetism joke. It's not funny. I'm sorry. The, the first form was, excuse me, what we call appearance docetism, wherein the body of Jesus was illusory, uh, illusory in nature. So it's, it's an illusion. There's no there there. You may have thought you touched something, but it was a figment of your imagination. The second form is what we call separationist docetism, as in it merges the docetic Gnosticism with heretical separationist Christology, which we've kind of covered before. In this system, the man Jesus was inhabited by the spiritual Christ. And we're using Christ here in air quotes. So you've got a physical man, Jesus. There is a spiritual Christ that descends, and that's typically done at the baptism of John. And then at some point on in the public ministry, the spirit of the Christ departs from the physical Jesus, and that's usually... Um, either in the garden or at some point along the uh, the uh, Via Della Rosa. Excuse me. You'll see this. Um, some forms of this would tell you that it was the Spirit used the uh, the in the intersection. My goodness, I can't come up with words today. The intersection with uh, Simon of Cyrene as an opportunity to kind of make his escape. And that allows the physical body of Jesus to suffer while the pure spirit, which is Christ, is rescued and sent away. Remember, physical is bad, so it should be punished. Spiritual is good, so it cannot be punished. Now, we get a new church father. You ready? Ignatius of Antioch. We add a new guy to our condemnation roll call here. In his letter to the Smyrnians in chapter 7, he actually warned the Christians of Smyrna to avoid these teachers. Now, according to Ignatius, among their false doctrines were abstaining from the Lord's Supper, mocking the Passion, and they avoided prayer. Now, go ahead and tell you right now, we have no real reason to doubt Ignatius because if you actually have been paying attention and you'll read some of the uh, Gnostic first century gospels and faux epistles, 
you will actually kind of give him the benefit of the doubt. In light of what the core of docetism is, these charges are both reasonable and they're pretty much believable. The supper should be rejected if you're a docetist because they do not believe the bread to be the body in any shape, form, or fashion. So regardless of what stream of Christianity you prefer, you're left out in the cold by the docetist. So if you're a Roman Catholic and you are holding to transubstantiation, well, get out. It's rejected. Why? Jesus has no body, and if there's no body, then there's no way in which a body can inhabit the elements of the supper. If you're a Lutheran stream and you're following consubstantiation, you're also cast aside. How do you have the real physical presence of Jesus in, with, around, and under the elements if there's no actual physical body of Jesus to do that with. And if you're like me and you're a good modern evangelical and you follow the Zwinglian model of a memorial, well, congratulations, you're engaged in vapid time-wasting because there's no memorial of physical suffering because there's no physical suffering that brings redemption, just condemnation of evil flesh. So all of that is lost. The passion is rejected because Jesus' suffering is not atoning in any real or meaningful sense. The deity in the form of the uh, spiritual, quote-unquote, Christ would have departed well before any death occurred. So the passion is, uh, well, it's pointless in docetic thought. And you don't have any reason to have prayer. I mean, why? There's no Jesus physically in heaven at the right hand of the Father, pure in his actions, interceding on behalf of his people. It, it doesn't exist. So there's no need for prayer. Again, what are you going to pray for? You're going to pray predominantly for what? Physical things. Ah, in docetism, physical is bad. You want to be free from your physical. You don't need to pray for that. You just need to be released from your physical prison. Uh, death would be a preferred outcome here. There's no eternity, there's no consummation of the age, there's no redemption of the garden. All of these things are gone. They're, they're out, of the, out of the Bible. They're out of Christianity completely if you are a docetist. Now, with all that being said, I can't imagine why this group was so quickly condemned and deemed heretical. You can um, insert eye roll here. And again, when we say quickly... We're using ancient standards. You may do the research and be like, these guys were around for decades. How were they quickly condemned? Again, no facts, no iPhone, no, no Twitter, no Facebook. You had to have letters carried by people or horses. And I mean, people would die. There would be a plague. Somebody's, you know, city would get invaded. <coughs> Excuse me. And so the mail didn't run that month. You know, all sorts of things would delay. And we live in a soundbite culture. So when you're dealing with ancient history here, when you're dealing with church history, especially in the early church, you have to allow for a certain patience and, um, and slowness of thought and speech. And that's probably something we should get back to a little bit more. I know I am one of those that is very guilty of not being patient and slow to speak to uh, more often than not. And part of the reason we need to get back to that is because what they did right was evaluate. They looked so we're going, well, dude, we read this. This, this is done here, like five minutes. We, we can see why these guys are and should be condemned. Uh, but remember, how many years did it take them to compile this teaching? How many interactions did they give? They gave them the benefit of the doubt. They heard the side, and then they condemned rightly. Fewer uh, firing squads at your side when you take your time. So what is the actual correction that we want to look at? Because you, I mean, we can see in the, in the benefit of hindsight, which is, again, why we should study church history. This is easy to condemn because we have the 
the writings and the teachings down through the ages. So what's the tact, though, when you come across the modern-day New Ager Gnostic Docetist who wants to go down these roads with their, with their faux gospels and their deuterocanonical epistles for your fancy te uh, theological terminology nerds out there? Well, I'm glad you asked. Our starting point with this group should be easy. We want to get to the heart, and in order to deal with this, we have to deal with the idea of Christ. Who is he? Now, this is again where history is going to help us out. Jesus' humanity and deity exist bodily. That is, actually, physically, in what is termed the hypostatic union. So, you're going, do, 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 what? In the actual physical body of Jesus, there were contained both a complete human nature and a complete divine nature. And this is, yes, within his actual physical body. I'm going to keep making that statement. There's no mixing or mingling of these two natures. Thus, Jesus is fully God and fully man. Now, you're going, ah, you're trying to be awful precise here. What for you do that? And well, the reason I do that is because we actually do have some pretty precise language in our history. So let's borrow. And again, if you want to know why this becomes important, this is why there's historical theology and why we do it. And also, uh, plug alert, plug alert, plug alert, why there's a church history section included in every issue of Calvary's Cavalry, which is the theological journal you may read and sign up for at practicaltheologyministries.com. We have a, theolo a historical theology section in there every month because this matters. There is nothing new under the sun, as Ecclesiastes would tell you. Therefore, we do well to actually look at the teachings of old and see how they refuted this and follow in line. So, in regards to history, let's see the definition as it's given by, say, oh, the Council of Nicaea in 325. We believe in one God, the Father Almighty, maker of all things, visible and invisible, and in one Lord Jesus Christ, the Son of God, begotten of the Father, the only begotten, that is, of the essence of the Father, God of God, light of light, very God of very God, begotten, not made, being of one substance with the Father." This is a good statement, which you're going, well, duh, why do you think we're reading it 1,700 years later? This is, this is good if you, uh, if you are in more of an ecumenical denomination, say uh, Methodist or Presbyterian or Lutheran that are you know, still actually reading the Bible. Excuse me, got to get my water in there. You may actually run across these creeds. Now, the Nicene Creed is not what was printed at Nicaea. It's kind of modified by, uh, by Chalcedon and other councils later, but we can still go back to the core of what Nicaea said in 325. The Son is begotten as described in Scripture, say places like John 3.16, but he is in essence or substance, same word there, essence and substance, so the core of his being as God. So Jesus is God. Now this is Here's where it gets practical. This is, in, this is not blasphemy for Jesus to claim equality with God, as the crowd clearly understood in John 10. See, you want to have some fun, read John 10. When John, Jesus says, John 10, 30, uh, I and the Father are one. The crowds pick up stones to stone him. Why? Because they understood very clearly what he was claiming. He says, what, for what good work do you stone me? And they tell him, not for any good work, because you being a man, make yourself out to be God. To claim equality with God is to claim to be God, because only God can be God. See, we, we don't think like this, but when it comes to Jesus, as the old story goes, it ain't bragging if you can back it up. 
Now, just because something is clearly condemned doesn't mean it goes away. That's why we have Nicaea in 325, and then, again, pretty quickly in, in history terms, we have uh, Chalcedon in 451. Theologians, uh, teachers, Bible leaders through the ages have been consistent on this. So, what was required to further explain the nature of Christ? This is what Chalcedon said in the, uh, the decrees of Chalcedon. We then, following the Holy Fathers, all with one consent, teach people to confess one and the same Son, our Lord Jesus Christ, the same perfect in Godhead and also perfect in manhood. This is where our definition of the hypostatic union comes from. The council further declares, though, that Jesus is one in the same Christ, Son, Lord, only begotten to be acknowledged in two natures, inconfusedly, unchangeably, indivisibly, and inseparably. Now, you're going, okay, that's, that's great. What incarnation does that actually mean? So let's see if we can put this simply and make sense of this as we go. God has a name that he himself has given us to use. So Exodus 3.14, God is that he is, I am that I am. So God's name is Yahweh, or Yah Yahweh, depending on which way you want to pronounce your Hebrew there. Now, no, it's not blasphemy to say that that's not how the, the commandment is written. I'm not taking the Lord's name in vain. I'm using it rightly to describe God. So God's name is Yahweh. Now, that name encapsulates the description of God in human terms. He is the self-existent one, but it is also a description of the essence of God. So who God is, again, at his core. Now, we can't stop there. We have to move forward because under the banner of Yahweh, so under the name of Yahweh, the essence of Yahweh, there exists the three persons of Yahweh, the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit. One God, three persons. Now, don't get yourself messed up, because if you're like me, you have a tendency to do this by nature. You think of God as Yahweh is the Father, Jesus is the Son, and then the Holy Spirit is the Holy Spirit. He doesn't get a name. But no, 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 no. That's not how Scripture is. When we're talking about the law being given on the mountain to Moses by Yahweh, we're talking about God giving the law, the Father, the Son, the Spirit. This is why it's important when you read things in like uh, Exodus 3, when you see Moses called to the burning bush. We, we read this wrongly too often, and we see that Moses sees the bush on fire, and he goes, and then there's this great disembodied voice. No, no, no. Yahweh is there above the bush. He is there personally. That's, that's Christ. Who is walking in the garden in the cool of the day? Well, Yahweh is, but how is he doing that? He's doing it in the appearance of Christ. It's what's called a Christophany, a pre-incarnate appearance of Christ. There are plenty of places we get a voice. You know, the angel of the Lord speaks to Abraham so he doesn't slay Isaac. But there are plenty of places also in the Old Testament we get a physical appearance. Who's walking with Hananiah, Azariah, and Mishael in the uh, fiery furnace of Nebuchadnezzar? That's Jesus, but it's Yahweh who appears with the two angels before going to Sodom, Sodom and uh, going down into Sodom and destroying the, the cities of the valley. That's Jesus, but it's also Yahweh. They are one and the same. This is why we do this. Now, notice how we describe this. There exists the three persons of Yahweh, Father, Son, Holy Spirit, one God, three persons. And yes, we are using that word to avoid any hint of modalism. We want to use the word persons, one essence, one being, three persons. We don't want to use manifestations or appearances, not, not always, and it, because if 
what ends up happening is, so here, let me say this. We don't want to use manifestations or appearances all, all the time. If we want to use appearances occasionally, like Old Testament appearances of Christ. That does not mean that God appeared as Christ. It means God appeared. Christ appeared. That's what we're dealing with. Whenever you see a modern evangelical or a typical oneness, typically a oneness, oneness Pentecostal, they like using the manifestations of God or the appearances of God. And the reason they like that is because then they don't have to claim the persons of God. They get to be fuzzy and nebulous and, and sneak around their doctrine. Excuse me. Pardon that cough there. We don't want to do that. We want to use persons because it is precise and it nails us down on how we're presenting this. So, Let's put this into practice. In ancient Israel, the son, who is Yahweh, left the throne room of himself and joined his completely divine nature to a baby in the womb. Now, this is not after the child was conceived. That would be separationist. So there was a child and then the Christ was added in. No, no. This is the act of divine conception by the Holy Spirit as described in Luke one thirty-five. So, what you have is the in in the work of Yahweh, you have the Father presenting the plan and ordaining and decreeing the plan. You have the Holy Spirit executing his plan, which is both the plan of the Father and of himself, and you have the Son participating in it, where the, the second person of Yahweh, the Son, is added to the human body and nature that is Jesus in the womb. This is not done in an order. This is done simultaneously by God. This is important. The completely divine nature does not overshadow or overpower the human nature. They both occupy the same body fully, uniquely, and contemporaneously without one wrestling the other. And this matters because were the divine spirit to overpower the human soul, we lose our mediator. This is going to become important. Now, do I understand how that works? No, I don't. I really wish I did. And neither do you. And that's the mercy of God in proof of the divine origination of Christianity and Scripture. And you're like, wait a minute. You just told me something completely insane that I can't understand and tell me that's proof it's from God? Yes. Yes, it is. Were this a fictional deity? something we made up, guess what we'd be able to do? We'd be able to explain, comprehend, and understand him. We can't. People wrote as they were moved, as Second uh, Peter 1, 21 and 20 tells us. Therefore, this winds up being beyond our comprehension. <clears throat> to continue along those lines, Scripture and our orthodox understanding of God, which is that which stands with Nicaea and Chalcedon, is not the product of the human mind or will. Again, if it were the product of a human mind or will, we could understand it. We can't. Therefore, we know that it isn't. Therefore, we follow submissively. So, next we're going to dive into the necessity of a physical body. Remember, I kept making that point, an actual physical body. Why do I do that? In order to redeem, Jesus had to be made like us. Now, that doesn't mean he pretended to be like us. He had to actually be like us. He had to be tempted and overcome, as Hebrews 4, 14 through 16 says. And this overcoming is demonstrated in the temptation, things like Matthew 4, 1 through 11. The second Adam succeeds where the first Adam failed. Jesus trusts God. Could the divine nature in Christ have turned the stones into bread? Yes. 
Could he have jumped off the temple and survived? Yes. Could he have avoided the cross? Yes. Why didn't he? Because that's not the plan. So the human nature is in submission to the divine will, decree, and order. Therefore, he succeeds where Adam, as our representative, fails. Were God to deny sin, we would all go, duh. But for a man to deny sin is for him to ascend gloriously perfect to the cross as the righteous sacrifice for his people. Uh, Welcome to John 129. Behold what? The Lamb of God, the perfect sacrifice who takes away the sins of the world. Peter explains this perfectly in his necessity. You want a good reason of that? Read 1 Peter uh, 2, 21 through 24. What does he do? He praises Christ's sinlessness and perfect trust of God. Why does he do that? So that Jesus can bear our sins, not his sins, our sins, so that in Christ we might be dead to sin and alive in the righteousness of God. Paul does the same thing. He points to the physical existence of the body of Jesus in 1 Corinthians 15, uh, especially go to uh, verses 42 through 49, and he explains with what difference? That which is fallen, sinful, perishable, versus that which is raised, imperishable, and righteousness. Why? Because we're following after our representative. We're following after our leader, our head, who is Christ, who has done this. We follow in line. How do we know that Jesus was sinless when he died? Because there was no power for death to hold him. There was no crime committed against him that he is worthy of death. Therefore, the Father raises him. See how this works? The docetic theology of Christ is just one of those duh refutations in Scripture. Again, this is why it's refuted so quickly by ancient standards. But unfortunately, humanity clings to really the idea and its offspring. Why? Because they reject the sacrifice of Christ. I want to make a sacrifice. I want to get credit. I want to do this. No, 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 no. God will not share his glory with another. Isaiah 42, 8 makes this point clean. We submit, we trust, and we follow. And that actually gets us to our last little thing that we learn from this. The sufficiency of Scripture. Part of the idea of following as we are called in places like, again, 1 Corinthians 11, follow after me, be imitators of me as I imitate Christ, is knowing what to follow. Jesus came in the flesh. How do I know that? John 1.14 tells me so. And even clarified the necessity of that work in 1 John 4.2. His birth is promised by God in Luke 1. He's praised for his coming in the flesh in Philippians 2. He demonstrates the reality of his resurrected body in John 20. If we reject this, it is because we have rejected the clear testimony of the inspired word of God, Uh, 2 Timothy 3, uh, 2 Peter 1. If we understand this and reject it, because we have rejected the sufficiency of the inspired word. So in other words, we've walked away from the Bible as our standard and guide, as our canon, our rule for faith and practice. Don't do that. Don't do that. As Christians, we can't do that. It is incumbent upon us to do the hard work of knowing the word and being built up by it. This is clearly commanded in Scripture. Psalm 1, both Old Testament, uh, Joshua 1, and the New Testament, places like Romans 12, uh, Hebrews 12. We study the ancient departures from orthodoxy, these heresies, because they are truly the stuff of nightmares. You want to know what Jude's talking about when we talk about waterless rain clouds? and shipwrecks, and, and, you know, bad times in our love feasts. This is the stuff he's warning us about. We, as Christians, should be learning, growing, being secure in Christ and prepared for the battle, putting on the full armor of God, because when we do that, we can't lose. We can't fall away. We cannot fail. So there you go. Christ is man, trusting, walking, 
understanding the testimony of Scripture and following along. So, children, what have we learned here today? For starters, the noetic effect of the fall is real. It affects everything. How we think, how we evaluate, we need to be grounded in Christ. God redeems every part of his people, even your body. Remember, the testimony of Genesis to Revelation is a restoration of the garden, that which is lost. The creation groans with its sufferings being subjected to sin. What's restored at the end of Revelation? A physical garden with God ruling and reigning and people in physical bodies for eternity. And finally, incarnation is good, right, and necessary. What do I mean by incarnation? The actual taking on of flesh by Christ. Had he not done that, we do not have redemption. It is necessary, it is good, and we follow along because that is how God has shown us that he works. So, questions? Send them to info at practicaltheologyministries.com. Hopefully next week, next week, I got to schedule this instead of a message. It's supposed to be this week, but it's going to be next week. We're going to get Lou back, which means we'll probably have two podcasts a week. Ooh, one with Lou on doctrine and pop culture stuff. And then one here as we uh, detail the heretics of the ancient and eventually modern church. We're going to get there. We're going to get there, but we got, we got to build a foundation first. So again, info at practicaltheologyministries.com. If you go to the website, practicaltheologyministries.com, there you can find us. Uh, links for Facebook and Twitter. You can download uh, past episodes. There's a little streaming player there. You can find all the good information. You can sign up for the newsletter, the little theological journal we put together. Hopefully, I'm going to get that at the uh, next edition out next week, and that will that will get us back on schedule. You can see all that good stuff, and and if you don't like anything that's there, you can check out the blog and see if you find stuff there you don't like, and be that way. And again, if you got questions, send them to me. Be glad to answer them to I, to you. Be glad to answer them for you, and. If there is nothing else, until next time, read your Bible. It'll do you good. God bless.